0: You're listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. On today's show, we sit down with the co-founder of Global Capital Markets, Mark Wilser, who has 26 plus years as a veteran investment banker with a proven track record of maximizing shareholder value through mergers and acquisitions and corporate finance transactions. His specialties include sell-side mergers and acquisitions involving both strategic buyers and private equity, growth capital, debt and equity, and management buyouts. On today's show, we talk about what is the process for a mergers and acquisition deal? What are all the steps that are involved? What are some red flags in deals that should be of concern? And how do bankers get paid? What's a normal fee structure? This and much more today's episode of the Silicon Valley podcast. All right, let's start the show. Enjoy. Enjoy. Welcome to the Silicon Valley podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. I'm very excited to welcome our guest today on the Silicon Valley podcast, Mark Wilser, the co-founder of Global Capital Markets. So for everyone out there, just to let you know, Global Capital Markets, I'm a principal there. Uh, Mark has been a mentor, a guide. I can't say enough good words about him. Over the time I've been there, I've learned, I can't even tell you the amount that I've learned from him. So I'm very excited to have him on the show today to talk about investment banking, mergers, acquisitions. We're going to go into a lot of great details. But with that, I just have to start with Mark. Can you give a brief introduction of your career up until this point for our listeners? Sure, Sean. Well, listen, very grateful
1: for having been invited to the program here. I know you do great work. So I grew up in New Jersey, went to college at the University of Virginia in Charlottesville. I studied chemical engineering. I uh, was on the nationally ranked soccer team. Worked in Louisiana as a development engineer for several years in the chemical industry. And uh, ended up going back to Harvard Business School for my MBA. And upon graduation, joined a management strategy consulting firm by the name of Maricon Associates, which is a competitor to Bain and McKinsey and Boston Consulting Group. And the firm focused on value-based management, which really was the launching point, in a sense, Of my interest in investment banking, so we worked with Fortune 200 clients in an effort to help them maximize their value through strategic planning. But an obvious offshoot of that was all the M&A projects, and we got invited in to assist on some M&A projects with companies like DuPont and Eastman Kodak and American Express. And it really opened my eyes to a whole different world Uh, when I moved to Southern California in 1991 and joined a middle market investment bank. My goal was to take those same skills that I had learned and refined, assisting very large, very sophisticated public companies in maximizing their shareholder value, to apply those—that's those same skills—to middle market privately held businesses. That not only myself, but building a team of fifteen other registered representatives, which is the really the legal term for investment bankers, whereby we've done a, a hundred and. Seventy deals, ranging in valuation from five million to three hundred million. Our focal point really is to achieve the owner's goals, which frequently involves maximizing the value of the company, involves finding the right buyer to take over their legacy, it involves getting the right terms and conditions. You know, this is a, a really calling of sorts for people that that love the deal world. They and they're challenged by project management. You've got to understand business strategy. You've got to understand finance. You've got to understand people management, and you've got to understand uh, project management. And so there's a psychology to deals, there's a financial part of deals, there's a strategy part of deals. My career really has been kind of developing uh, skills to accomplish those goals, as well as building an organization to have a greater impact than just
0: any one person can have. So Mark, what's the advantage of working with an investment bank versus doing something yourself? There's a lot of CEOs that I'm guessing are thinking, I don't want to spend Pay a retainer or a success fee to someone else doing something that I'm the boss. I'm the CEO. I do everything myself. How? What's the benefit?
1: Well, Sean, there is that perspective from
0: private companies because
1: they've you know gotten in to where they are at least in the early years by very aggressive cost management. The reality is the middle market in particular for private companies is very inefficient. And what does that mean? That means if you've got a company nominally worth twenty million or fifty million, you can sell it for sixteen million or forty-two million all day long or if properly marketed in a competitive environment you can sell it for 68 million or 26 million and the reality is is that when we get 10 offers for a business there's a very substantial variance and many companies come to us with an offer on the table which is somewhat counterintuitive but we can develop competition move that buyer north As well as to be honest with you, most of the time that offer on the table doesn't is not able to compete with buyers that we bring in. I really think it's it's you can compare it to the art world. Why do people that own pieces of art worth tens of millions and sometimes hundreds of millions of dollars, why do they hire Christie's or Sotheby's to auction their art? Why do they pay twelve percent, which is a lot higher than investment banking fees? The reason they pay that is because they know that net of the twelve percent commission, their net purchase price is going to be materially higher than it would be without an auction, without an agent making a market and managing a process. And so we should be able to get back our fees two, three, four, five times in terms of purchase price increase. And we've got the data to prove it. We've got clients that that have experienced it. And they refer their friends, they refer their professional colleagues, because they know it's just not in a business owner's interest to answer the door and sell to someone who
0: knocks on the door or try to manage that process themselves. So before asking about the process, I also have to ask, here in Silicon Valley, and I'm sure in many other places in the world, there's all these people that go, hey, I know a ton of investors. Hey, I can find you the money for your company. Even though they're not registered, they're not investment bankers, they're just people that might have a lot of high net worth friends. How come this may not be the best way to go as a business owner?
1: Well, there's a number of reasons, Sean. I mean, it's a good question. There's a lot of connected people that, that think they can be a Monday morning investment banker. The reality is, though, it's, it's as much about managing the process as it is in context. When a large public company sells to one of its competitors, they almost without exception, hire an investment bank to interface those negotiations, to develop some competitive alternatives, to manage the positioning, to manage the timing to deal with confidential matters, all those things add tremendous value. They wouldn't be hiring an investment bank if they didn't see value in it. And in fact, the directors can really have liability if they do not hire a fiduciary in a bank to manage that process and make sure that the shareholders get optimum value. Can people casually make introductions? They can, but, but who's going to manage that process? Who's going to determine when the bids are due? Who's going to? Going to analyze the bids. Who's going to go back to which buyers and make counter proposals? What are those counter proposals going to have in them? And what happens when deal gets off track? And all they did was make an introduction? If the management team is supposed to quote unquote manage the deal, what are, who's going to manage the company? Managing the deal of capital raising of significant amount, or managing the sale of a business, or the recapitalization of a business takes huge amounts of time. Even in those instances where the management team has prior professional experience. They may be investment bankers in a prior life themselves. They typically hire an outsider because their time is better spent optimizing performance of the company because the value degradation that, ha- that occurs from them not managing the company is many times the amount of the fee they would pay. There's just a lot of misinformation out there as to how investment bankers add value, what role they play, and how inefficient the market is. And, and frankly, what's the relative value contribution of, of quote-unquote identifying a buyer or an investor? That's just 10% of the way. 90% of the process is managing the process, negotiating term conditions, and managing the due diligence and and managing the the closing process in a way that maximizes the value of the business and diminishes any degradation in performance
0: based on either confidentiality leaks or or an undue burden on management's time. So I want to ask a little bit more about what a finder can actually do, because I mean, that is something that comes up quite a bit here in Silicon Valley. I mean, are they really even allowed to be part of the deal? If the company has a
1: misstep and an unregistered agent, which is a finder, not registered by FINRA, not registered with the SEC, undertakes certain activities in the promotion and sale of securities, then those securities can can themselves be tainted. And the buyer can have, in, in some certain situations, particularly in California, can have the right of rescission. What that means is that, say, a buyer makes a $20 million investment in a company and it's through an unregistered agent, a finder, as you call them. And say for whatever technical reasons, it wasn't done properly and the finder, it's found that, that that was improper. With the right of rescission, if the business doesn't do well, you can imagine crafty lawyer on that representing the buyer can say, two years later, we want our money back. Well, the company may not have that money. If the business didn't perform, were they going to come up with the $20 million that they executed the growth plan, which where the growth didn't occur? There's a lot of opportunity for missteps and for exposure in addition to the fact that finder is again just making an introduction so i think if there is someone in a finder's role that should be additive to the investment banker's work not not in place of and there should be a securities attorney that makes absolutely certain that the finder is not jeopardizing the clean title of the of the stock for the buyer because ultimately that could have recourse to the seller
0: that's interesting i wonder how many companies here in the Valley have gone through a finder just to have later on uh, the investors come back and, and things to kind of haunt them?
1: You know, Sean, I don't think it's a frequent event, but it's such a cataclysmic
0: event that it's just not advisable,
1: right? I mean, you can fly an airplane without a license. You can yeah. undertake a medical procedure without a license. There there are unlicensed doctors performing surgeries of various times, cosmetic surgeries and whatnot. There are people providing legal advice without a law degree. The question isn't how frequently you'll be caught. The question is, what are the consequences when you are caught? And usually it's the matter of something else happens, right? When you're driving around with a sack of cocaine in your trunk, the cop pulls you over because you have a taillight missing. It's much better to have a taillight missing and, and the guy says, well, there's nothing in the trunk here. Get your taillight fixed Than saying, what's this bag of white powder? And so if you're going to work with an unregistered agent and you're not 100% certain that the deal's going to go well, when things go up poorly, people look for leverage, they look for excuses, they look for reasons that they can be made whole. And an unregistered agent is one of those reasons. Is it going to happen frequently where, where there's a problem? Probably not. But, but when it does happen, it won't matter how frequently or unfrequently it happens in the general economy. The only thing that will matter is, is that you, know, you or your shareholders are going to pay the consequences.
0: I mean, with that, there's only so many bankers. How do they kind of determine what companies they want to work with? Or will they just take anyone that comes along and goes, listen, I need help doing this? Like what's kind of the vet and screening process between the bank and the company?
1: Some clients are great at picking bankers and and just like they're good at picking lawyers or construction contractors or whatnot, there's an there's an art to evaluating talent and an art to evaluating, you know, who the right provider is. And some people are good at it and some aren't. But I, from my personal perspective, you should look at the training, you know, the education, the pedigree of the banker, look at their track record you should speak to their references you should ask them questions that you know how they add value what, what kind of process do they go through and you should speak to other bankers and and that whole process of interviewing professionals for a job whether it's an accountant or an attorney or a painting contractor or whatever you in the process of interviewing vendors you learn about the process you know one candidate says something that catches your attention and you understand it and you can use that knowledge in interviewing the next candidate and in particular you should interview past clients of the organization. Both those that succeeded, ask for a couple of clients where a deal didn't get closed because not all deals close. And you want a, you want a professional that for the, even for those clients where they didn't close the transaction, they're happy with the service provided by the banker because they're confident that everything was done possible to achieve their goals. You have to be a little wary about somebody that provides you two or three references and they've done 170 deals. Well, what, what about the other 167 deals? So You might do some research and and ask them about some deals that they didn't provide references on. But the other thing is, what about professional contacts? What about attorneys they've worked with? What about accounting firms they've worked with? If you get a well-established attorney and a well-established accountant, have an active M&A practice, and you get feedback on that professional from more than one practitioner in each of those fields, your risk of having a bad relationship is, is very highly diminished because those professionals are staking their own personal goodwill and professional reputation when they're asked to provide kind of a professional reference. So I think that's an excellent way of kind of learning about and allocate, you know, one, two, three months to the process of learning about investment banking,
0: interviewing candidates and things of that nature. Not a quick process. And the opposite, how do the bankers decide on what clients to take on? Well, that's a great question, Sean, because it's one that's counterintuitive. I mean, some bankers take on any client that's willing to pay a
1: fee because they're they just don't have you know adequate number of projects to work on, they've got bills to pay. So to them, maybe the retainer and the prospect of a closing is sufficiently exciting to to work on almost any project. The banks that are that are successful are much more discerning because 85-90 percent of the economics of any deal is is related to the closing. For people that have real business costs, offices, databases, compliance costs, personnel, staff. We need to close deals to to get our bills paid, to make a good living, good return on our talents. And therefore, key to us is can this deal be closed? Can the client's objectives be satisfied? And that's really a multi-part question, right? Because you might have a company worth hundred million dollars, but if the client requires one hundred and fifty million, you shouldn't be working on that deal. And maybe the client has other realistic or unrealistic requirements. Maybe they don't want to stick around for a transition. Maybe there's no success for management. Maybe their company's on the decline. So I think the key differentiating factor is for bankers are how discerning are they? How, of all the deals they get introduced to, how many? what percentage do they pursue? What percentage do they take on? And there's far too many people out there that are not discerning, that take on a project that is not realistic for fundamental reasons. It's not a good use of their time. It's not a good use of the client's time or money. And so that's, that's really a differentiating factor between what I would say kind of successful investment bankers and wannabes is how discerning are there in, in terms of, and what's their closure rate? Your closure rate should be 75, 80%. Not all deals close. The reality is, is that sometimes the, the fortunes of the company change during the marketing process. Sometimes the industry changes. Sometimes there's competitive changes. So anyone that tells you they close 100% of their deals uh, is probably not being honest. If they're closing 20% of their deals, which is true of some organizations, that's,
0: that's not a good sign. And is there a bird in the background there? There might be. <laughs> <laughs> so for our listeners, that might be able to hear that. Mark's in a very tropical area right now. But with that, let's continue. Mark, you'd mentioned one to three months just vetting the investment banker. How long is this whole process well, you know, if you spend 40 years building a company, Sean, to think
1: you're going to get it sold or recapitalized in, you know, in a couple of weeks is probably unrealistic. If you want to do it the right way, and that one to three months of kind of vetting investment bankers is, that's presuming that you don't have prior experience or prior contacts. So if you've done deals before or your attorney knows exactly the right banker, you know, you can do it much more quickly. But in terms of the process, process typically takes six to 12 months to to sell or recapitalize a substantial enterprise. And you know a similar thing can be said, depending on the amount of capital being raised and whether it's institutional or, or whether it's high net worth individuals, it's not dramatically different. It's, it can be faster on a capital raise. But from the M&A standpoint, the project is really broken up in three phases. The first phase is documentation and preparation. So you've got to put together a, a confidential memorandum, a teaser, a data room, do some valuation work on the company the second, and that typically takes 45 to 60 days really to get all the documentation together, construct a data room. The next phase is the marketing phase. That's the outreach to potential buyers and potential investors. We've already done the buyer research in the first phase, but this is a matter of reaching out and getting prospective buyers to sign confidentiality agreements, negotiating those confidentiality agreements, disseminating the confidential memorandums, answering questions, hosting calls, and then ultimately soliciting proposals. And and the first round of proposals, shown are what's typically called as indications of interest. And that really is just a qualification for prospective buyers or investors to be given the right and the the opportunity to meet with the management team, to meet for a management presentation. And so you might get 15 indications of interest and we might pick the top seven or eight to meet with the management team. So seven or eight groups are disqualified. Either they don't have the profile that the company is looking for, their valuation is not in the right range. The idea is that why would we waste our time meeting with them? The management meetings are an opportunity for the company to further sell the business and sell the opportunity, as well as qualify the investors and buyers. In other words, they, the investors and buyers, because they're placed in a competitive environment, they have to compete not only on price and terms, but they have to compete on what's the likelihood of them closing. What's the likelihood of them succeeding with the business and paying any deferred or contingent payments? So this becomes a bit of a courting process between the management team and the, and the company's owners and anywhere from three to 10 prospective buyers or investors. At the end of that whole series of management meetings and some follow-up questions after those meetings, then we typically issue a process letter for letters of intent. And the letters of intent are a much more detailed Document then the indications of interest. Instead of being a price range, it's a specific price. Instead of likely an asset deal or likely a stock deal, it's definitely an asset or a stock deal. We have them comment on and pick various definitions of knowledge. That we, we would ask them to talk about reps and warranties. What are the baskets and the caps? And, and what's the duration of the non fundamental reps? So all these things are, are basis for competition between buyers. And we typically ultimately sign a letter of intent with one party. Then we really get into the third phase, which is documentation, due diligence, and closing. And that's taking the agreed upon business deal, which is typically a eight or 10 page single space letter and converting that in a 60 or 70 page purchase agreement with disclosure schedules and employment agreements and all the required documents for funding and closing. And that's where experienced M&A law firm will have to join us, handle a lot of that legal negotiation while we continue to... Negotiate and manage the business
0: affairs. So that whole process—I mean, that's pretty extensive. Is that similar—a merger and acquisition process, or a merger and an acquisition? Are they a little bit different? Or raising growth capital is a little different. Like, how similar is step one to the end for all these different things that an investment banker might be involved in?
1: They're really fairly similar. The whole idea is—is is you're putting together documentation to promote the opportunity. You're exposing that information under confidentiality agreements to a number of buyers or investors, all of whom will be competitive in their pursuit of the client. You're reaching some point where a business deal is struck. You're frequently giving up exclusivity for some period of time to go through the actual negotiation and closing, the due diligence negotiation and closing. The general process is essentially the same for those different activities. There are nuances. There are nuanced differences depending on what you're going through. For instance you you mentioned how is an acquisition different than a merger in some ways deals can be combinations of acquisitions and mergers right i mean it's not it's like if you have a there's not just a chocolate ice cream cone and a vanilla ice cream cone sometimes there's a, an ice cream cone that has chocolate and vanilla to varying levels and i'll give you an example of that so, say you're selling your company to a buyer people you know not all deals are sold for all cash you might sell your business for part cash and you might sell your business in continuing interest in the combination of the buyer's business and your business. So that would have the flavor of an acquisition and a merger. Or if it were a straight out merger, you'd be selling your business in its entirety for a position, an ownership position in the merged entity. And the amount of ownership you would get would depend on the relative value of the two companies. And that's obviously something subject to negotiation. It's always a matter of what are you giving? What are you getting? And that form of consideration can take a lot of different forms. It can be cash, it can be a note, it can be a contingent payment stream based on performance, it can be a security in something that the buyer owns. There is virtually an unlimited number of scenarios, combinations, and permutations that can be considered. And, and our job is to find those combinations, permutations, and scenarios that accomplish the client's goals, whether they're financial, whether they're managerial, whether they're career wise, whether they're post closing commitment, post closing liability.
0: All those factors, you know, come into play. With all these variances, how do you get confidence that a deal is going to close in the process? Because I would guess as every step goes along, there's this worry that, oh, we got derailed. Oh, this because of this, it's not gonna happen. How do you have confidence it's all gonna get done?
1: Well, Sean, it's you know, there are tools and tactics and techniques, and then there's experience. You know, there's objective measures and there's subjective measures. And As I stated earlier, not all deals close, but one of the things, look at the financial capacity of the buyer. Do they have the capital to close the deal or do they have to raise money? How much money are they planning on borrowing? If they're looking to borrow more money than we think a bank could lend, that doesn't pretend well for closing the deal. Uh, Very important is what is the track record of the buyer or the investor in past deals? Working with someone on a complicated, large deal when it's their first deal, isn't my first choice in life. Working on a center of the plate Deal that's straightforward with a company that makes 15 acquisitions a year. There's a very high likelihood that that deal will get done. What's the task at hand? How complicated is it? How many different parties are involved? What are the financing requirements? And what's the capability and track record of, of the buyer? Because experience is very important uh, when you're going through an acquisition process. I had one attorney tell me that, and this is true: is that you know when the buyer is about to write a big check all of a sudden there's a million miles between their pen and the check because they can come up in their mind's eye of a million things that can go wrong. The benefit of experience is they know what as is issues come up and there's hurdles. They know what are real hurdles and they know what hurdles they can get over. And they know how to get over them because there will be hurdles, there'll be curveballs, there'll be in the course of evaluating and closing a deal. The question is, do they have the experience? Do they have the maturity and the judgment to know what are small problems and what are large problems how do they get around them there are some circumstances where people just don't have it in them to close a deal there's other circumstances that people when you, when you get resources if you're working if selling a company to a large buyer that does a lot of deals they have full-time professionals that do nothing but source and close deals that's their profession they're not distracted by operating issues they're not distracted by finance issues they aren't going to close all deals because not all deals are warrant closing. Sometimes there's an occurrence that warrants not closing the deal, but given the fact that it should be closed, if they have the resources and the experience and the talent and the focus, then they'll get that deal done. If you're working with someone that hasn't been there before, has a full-time job being the CFO and has, you know, significant other operating challenges at the same time, they're trying to close a deal. They don't, that they've never done before. That becomes a, a specious activity.
0: In the deal process itself, when does a company get exclusivity to the deal? What step of the process? How long should that time frame be? That's a judgment
1: call, and it varies materially. Sometimes if a company need, you know, if it's a, a deal where they need to raise a lot of money, there can be exclusivity. I've seen people request 120 days. More common in the middle market is, you know, 60 to 75 days. If it's a large buyer relative to the size of the seller and the company is super clean, and has had a quality of earnings study, has audited financial statements, the exclusive period could be as little as 30 to 45 days. If the deal is large enough and attractive enough, you can sometimes go to closing with two or three buyer candidates and not have an exclusive period. But that deal has to, has to be sizable. It has to be highly attractive because not many buyers want to invest big money in legal and accounting and management fees and time only to find out two days before closing that they weren't selected. Those deals have to be $200, $300, $400 million and above, whereby you can induce real buyers to spend real money in the pursuit of a company on a
0: non-exclusive basis. And then during these deals, what are some red flags that might come up that people should, call, that should cause some alarm?
1: Well, red flags would be from the seller's perspective, if the buyer is moving more slowly than, than you anticipated, if they, if they keep asking questions and they're not willing to dual track the their legal and accounting work at the same time. I mean, buyers that are very conservative, they want to do the easiest and the cheapest things first and not risk a lot of legal and accounting fees. So they may want to interview your customers. They want to to interview your employees, none of which is acceptable to a client that has a good investment banker. What are the things that you can look for in terms of clouds on the horizon? If the business operations suffer during due diligence, that's that's the kiss of death because uh, the buyers want to see that business operations go smoothly and not have problems, not have a diminishment of sales, not have a diminishment of earnings during the due diligence process. So that's the kiss of death is that the management team gets distracted, takes their eye off the ball, and the business suffers. And, and those deals typically won't close. Or if they close, it ends up being a, you know, a negotiated reduction in the purchase price.
0: And then Mark, I got to ask also, how do bankers get paid? What's the fee structure look like? Is it, how does that break down? The fee structure is, is pretty
1: commonly where 10 to 15% of the total forecasted consideration would pay in the form of a retainer or, or a deposit at the time that the banker's hired. And that really is a good faith investment uh, by the seller. It gives them what's called skin in the game. They're definitely interested in the process. They're sincere about their interests because the banker is going to spend, you know, five six seven eight hundred 800 hours in trying to get a deal done. They, they cannot afford to have a, a non-committed, client or a client that is just spontaneous and wants to wants to sell or raise capital one day and doesn't want to do it the next day. So having someone make a modest investment in the project, a modest financial investment, is an objective way to qualify the client as being committed to pursue a transaction. Doesn't mean they're legally, morally or ethically obligated to close. It means that they're sincerely interested in pursuing it. That retainer it may sound like a lot of money, but it's not a lot of money relative to the, to the work and effort that goes into getting a deal done. What's important from the client's perspective is, is that the real money, the real economic incentive is all contingent upon closing the deal and, and satisfying their goals. But knowing that the uh, seller has the right to refuse any offer for any reason or no reason whatsoever. And so that's, that's how deals are structured, really. There's a small commitment fee, and then the majority of the consideration is a, is a commission negotiated based on the size of the deal
0: as a percentage
1: of the, of the uh, purchase price.
0: And I also have to ask, outside changes in laws, how does that affect MMA deals? So say there was a new tax law, what happens there? Well, as tax laws change,
1: of course, clients try to either accelerate or defer activity into a year in which it's, it's to their benefit. Now. Right now, there's some talk about capital gains taxes going up in the future. So owners of privately held middle market businesses are, in some cases, you know, trying to bring their companies to market to realize that significant capital gain in advance of a tax law change. Will tax laws change? We don't know. How, the, how will they change? We don't know. When that change will take effect, could it be retroactive? Would it just be for next year? Would it be for subsequent years? We don't know. Uh, I think one thing we can say with a fair amount of confidence is, is that Taxes will be going up in the future. Income taxes will be going up. Capital gains taxes will be going up. And the simple reason is, is that we've got a huge national debt. We've got a huge budget deficit. It doesn't appear to me that politicians have
0: the discipline to manage spending, so they're going to have to increase revenue. Mark, for our listeners out there that might be just thinking about career paths in the future, kind of exploring the idea. I mean, a lot of people on this call are familiar with venture capitalism. Investment bankers, what's that career path look like?
1: You know, it's potentially very lucrative, but so are many other professions, right? You can make a lot of money in the law. You can make a lot of money in medicine. You can make a lot of money in business ownership. You can be in a highly compensated accountant or attorney. Most importantly, is, are the financial rewards there? For those that are successful, they absolutely are. But the reality, Sean, is if you're going to spend a good deal of your waking hours in a profession, you really got to make sure that you like it, that it's your passion. Because it's under those conditions that you're going to be good at it and you're going to enjoy it. What are the things that what are the activities that investment banking is rich in? As I described before, it's rich in financial analysis, it's rich in strategy, but it's very rich in client interaction and people management. You are more or less the quarterback of a deal, but but you've got to command respect from the other players, whether it's the client, whether it's the client's employees, whether it's the attorney that's on the deal, whether it's the accountant that's on the deal, whether it's the banker, the lender that's on the deal. Whether it's all the counterparties, you have to command their respect because you don't have any formal control over them, but you're appointed as the quarterback of the deal. And only in those instances where you command their respect will you be effective at leading that whole process. And so I think for people that are considering investment banking, maybe an internship is in in order. Like many professions, it's probably fairly different on the inside than it looks on the outside. It's kind of like a sport where you spend 90% of your time practicing. And 10% of the time in the game, you got to enjoy both. The game is the reward. The games are easy if you practice hard. And so, all of our preparation, all of our hard work in, in developing clients, in packaging clients, in planning for the sale of clients, all that pays off in the, in the actual game when you're in discussions, when you're in negotiations, when you're meeting with the management team, when you're meeting with lenders, you're meeting with buyers, all that pays off. But 90% of the blocking and tackling takes place off the field in advance of the game and you got to enjoy all of
0: it otherwise it's not not going to be a way you should spend your your career and before we wrap up do you have any stories of any deals you've worked on anything you can share with us any real life scenarios that took place that either for the good or for the bad there's a million stories you could could spend three days talking about you know the 170
1: deals because they all have a life of their own they're all people's livelihood they're all they all represent decades of people's you know, business careers, and they all took interesting twists and turns. I'll give you an interesting story, which is illustrative of how the deal business works and how it's a little different than my, many people might expect. Early in my career, I got approached by a very accomplished business executive. He had built and sold a couple of uh, companies before, really sold companies to tier one buyers. I mean large public companies. He had an offer on the table from a company on a business that he owned, and he was desirous of selling. And he intuitively knew it wasn't a high enough offer that, to justify selling, but he thought that that buyer could offer more. So he came to us and, and ex- expressed that, that the offer wasn't high enough. And he, and he hired us to package and market the business. And we took the next five months to package and market the business and solicit offers from other buyers. It, well, the first thing we did when we got on the scene was to alert the buyer that made the offer that your offer isn't adequate, and that you know, we have other people that we're working with and we'll keep you posted. So after five months, we had two other offers. They both exceeded, materially exceeded the offer of the first party who was on the scene when we got there. But that first party was a, was really an acquisition machine. They was a large company that did 30 to 40 deals every year. And so they were a desirable buyer. But we, we ended up working with the client to understand, that, hey, here's two offers. One is higher than the other. And yet there's a higher certainty closure of the offer that was on the table when we got there. So we went back to that party and said, you know, we're within 10 days of signing an exclusive letter of intent with another party at a substantially higher valuation. We need, you know, you to create your best and final offer. They didn't want to lose the deal. They ended up coming up, coincidentally, very close to where this offer that had been generated by a family business from the Midwest that had never made an acquisition before. they probably could have closed the deal, but it may not have closed. They would have been betting the farm, so to speak, and for a private company that has a very successful business, and they're literally wealthy. When you're betting the farm, again, it's unclear as to whether they're going to pull the trigger. So we ended up using that as a competitive negotiating tool, and we ended up striking a deal with the initial buyer at a materially higher valuation. But the only way we got there was to have competitive pressure. So we closed the deal with the large public company, and everyone was happy. Everyone except the private company in the Midwest that spent some time and effort pursuing our client's deal. So what are the lessons learned in that instance that really a buyer... A single offer is a, bid, is a buyer. Multiple offers are bidders. You'd much, much rather have bidders than buyers. And so it really took the heat of competition to move these people. But that's no different than other elements of life. I mean, athletes only frequently get maximum performance when they're in a competitive situation. If that quarterback isn't risking losing his job week to week, does he really leave it all on the field? Or does he become lazy and unfocused? That backup quarterback sitting on the bench that's ready to come in at a moment's notice provides a competitive element, drives performance. And that's what we bring to the table is a competitive element. You know, that's one story among many that, that I think provides some
0: lessons for how the business works. Wow, Mark. Thank you for that story. And if anyone wants to find out more information about you, Global Capital Markets, what's the best way to go about doing it? Yeah, so my email address is mw at globalcapitalmarkets.com.
1: Phone number 949-252-4600, extension 225. Be in touch with Global Capital. I've got 15 colleagues, all of whom are great investment bankers. Follow up with Sean. Follow up with any one of a number of other people on our website. We've got decades of experience, and, and we'd be delighted to hear about you or your clients' challenges and objectives and see if we can be a resource. So,
0: uh, Sean, I've enjoyed spending the time with you this morning, and I very much look forward to follow up. All right. Thank you, Mark. And for our listeners, we're going to have all the information in the show notes. So just check out the siliconvalleypodcast.com and uh, listen to this, you know, iTunes, Spotify, share this episode and listen to it a couple of times because I guarantee every time you listen to it, you're going to get some more and more nuggets of information. So with that, Mark, thank you again for your time here on the Silicon Valley Podcast. Thank you, Sean. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. To access our resources, visit us at theSiliconValleyPodcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional.